Well, hello and welcome to 15-Minute Theology, a podcast covering the central truths of the Christian faith in somewhere around 15 minutes, hopefully 15 minutes. My name is Tyler Burton, and on today's episode, we are talking through the doctrine of impassibility. There's a part in the Westminster Confession where it says that God has no parts or passions. And the parts thing we might get right away, but the passions thing can be a little bit confusing at first. So even though this might be a difficult doctrine at first, this is something we can talk through. And so to help us do so today is Dr. Joel Lawrence. Joel is the executive director for the Center for Pastor Theologians, a great organization. If you don't already follow them and follow their publications and everything they do, you should. It's great. Joel, thank you for being here with us on a very difficult topic. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. Happy to do it. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I I told you this beforehand when we talked that I asked a few different people about impassibility and they all said, do you have a different subject? And and so you were brave enough to go, "Okay, hey, impassibility, let's do it. So I appreciate your bravery. Yeah, you told me you'd already asked a number of people and didn't really give me much. So I was like, here we go. Happy to wait in here. I love it. I love it. It, it, Bravery, even by constraint, right? Here we go. There you go. There you go. I love it. Well, let's just kind of jump right into it. Impassibility initially on the surface can seem confusing. Even when we start to hear a definition or two might just be foreign to some of our categories. So let's just get a base definition. When we are saying that God is impassable, what do we mean when we are saying? Yeah, so a, a couple preliminary com, uh, points, and then and then we can we can dive into that. The first thing, I, and I teach theology. Uh, I'm an adjunct professor in a seminary, and when I kind of set up these conversations with my students, I, I, I always set it up by saying we're really digging into two things, and th- this isn't rocket science. This isn't going to change anyone's life. But here are the two things. The first is what are we affirming about God, and the second is what are we denying about God. Right. It's really the same thing. It's just, it's just flip sides. Of Twin sides. So yeah. coming to some, yeah, exactly. So coming to something like impassibility, it could be really easy just to kind of dive in and all of a sudden we're kind of getting confused about terms and, and the tradition and what's going on here. What I want to do is just kind of start with this level. What are we affirming about God and what are we denying about God? So with impassibility, the, the second thing is, like all doctrines, it's nestled in a relationship to other doctrines. So if we're talking about a passability. We're also talking about what's called immutability. And we're also talking, therefore, about the nature of God, the Trinity. So let's start with, you know, a very kind of basic de- definition of impassibility, as you, you mentioned in the confession, that God does not have passions. God does not suffer that God is not a God who has an emotional condition in the way that you and I as contingent beings have an emotional condition. I think what's, what we're wanting to deny about God is that he is like us, right? That is, that is a, a fundamental thing that I think comes through with the doctrine of passability is we don't want to take our emotional life, our emotional condition, and project that onto God. God is a different being than we are. Uh, Where I think impassibility can get tricky is it seems very clear from the scriptures that God does have passions, or God does have emotions, God does feel. 
right? We're not talking in the scriptures about a God like in the Greek tradition, which is kind of a, a you know, a being who is at the kind of end of the chain of being who is not feeling stoic, who is taught on yeah. being itself. The unmoved whatever. mover, right? About a, yeah. Exactly. We're talking about a personal God who reveals God's self mm. as a person. And so when we're talking about impassibility, I think it's really important for us to put that in the context of immutability and then Trinity. So let me just do that real quick Please. and, and uh, obviously jump in al along the way here. So let, let's ask this question. What are we affirming about God? What we're affirming about God in this whole conversation is that God is complete in God's self. God is not lacking anything that then creates a necessity in God for that which is outside of God. So that's, a, in terms of impassibility, that gets us to God's emotions are not dependent upon or affected by a need within God or a lack within yeah, God. Yeah. So, so we're affirming that God is complete in God's self. God is sufficient in God's self. God is not dependent upon anything outside of God's self. And that takes us then to the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one in three, that there is a a divine independence of anything outside of God. So God does not need to create because there's something lacking in God. God does not need us because there is something in God that is insufficient. And, and therefore, when we talk about God's emotions or God's in, the impassibility of God, we're affirming that God's emotional life is not dependent upon that which is outside of God. So that's what we're affirming. What are we denying? We're denying then, this flip side, that God is incomplete, that God is, is lacking, yeah. that God needs creation to be God, that God needs us to be God, and therefore that God's emotional life is dependent upon us. So those are the things we're affirming, and those are the things we're denying. That is a very helpful walkthrough, especially seeing it within the category of not just theology proper, but how to do theology and to do theology well. That is yeah. a very helpful walkthrough. So if I'm seeing it right, impassibility is God's experience of emotion is not something that's happening from outside to him. There is a Correct. consistency within God. That is making it where he is not being affected then in his emotional life. So yes. I have a question that naturally arises from that in that we, we see through the scriptures places in which it would seem like that is what's happening. Uh, I think of, right. I'm, I'm in the McShane reading plan. We just, I'm, I'm in the middle of numbers and I think through interactions with Moses and God goes, all right, I'm done. I'm done with these people. I'm, I'm going to get rid of them and I'm going to take care of you, Moses. Let's do this. Or even places where the, the scriptures actually say God's anger was kindled, right? It's like it was, he was moved towards it. Help us understand the doctrine of impassibility in light of those evidences we see in scripture. So here's, again, where I think the, the doctrine of the 
Trinity is the essential context for understanding this. Because what the doctrine of the Trinity does in the church's articulation of this is it introduces this, this unique dynamic into our understanding of the very being of God and the very nature of God, which is God is one, but God is three. And that three is a fellowship, a relationship of three persons who are the one God, not three distinct gods. We're not talking about a plurality of gods. Right. Right. We're talking about one God, but who exists eternally as three persons in a dynamic of fellowship, mm. in a dyna dynamic of relationship, which I think also means in a dynamic of, of emotion, of necessarily, God's right? loves, necessarily. Yeah. That's, that's vital, right? So when we talk, when we say Trinity, we are affirming that at the very heart of God is love mm. and that that is, is not entirely defined by being an emotion, but it, it is an emotion. And I think it is an emotion in the life of God. Mm. When God creates us in his image, God is extending himself in his relationality to the creation. Again, not because he was sad and it was just kind of boring for him to be father, son, and spirit, right. and he needed us. It wasn't out of lack. It was out of that relational dynamic of the oh, Trinity so to extend his fellowship to others who would participate with him. So the Trinity introduces this unique concept that again, wasn't part of the Greek tradition and was as the church came to articulate after the, the incarnation of Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the, the early church is grappling with this question of, all right, we're, 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 we're Jewish, right? In the early milieu of the church, we're Jewish, which means we confess that there is one God. We are not polytheists. There is one God. And yet something has been revealed in the event of Christ and in the outpouring of the spirit at, at Pentecost, which helps us to understand the nature of that one God as a God who is both complete within God's self, but also relationally mm. capable of extending himself into fellowship with people with us, his image outside of himself, which then brings a, a different layer, a different level of the emotional life of God, where I would say, I don't think what's going on in the pages of scripture is simply anthropomorphism hmm. to kind of, you know, we, we, we've got this God who is really out there and, and, um, it's more like the, the kind of Greek God, the Ta'an. Yeah, being. we're using descriptions and of yet, people about him because that's all we have when right. we don't really know what's happening. Right. Yeah. I don't think that's what's going right. on. I think what God is actually revealing God's self in a very particular way in that he then chooses to be in fellowship with us. Mm -hmm. He chooses to be in relationship with us. And in that sense, he chooses, not forced to, not out of lack, but he chooses to be in a relationship that has an emotional component yeah. to yeah. right? That, that has real emotion on God's side as well as 
on, on our side. So I am reticent to kind of say that what's going on in the scriptures is just anthropomorphism and God actually doesn't feel anger or God actually doesn't feel love or compassion or mercy. I believe he does. That's all complete within himself. And yet by creating and by engaging in fellowship with us, he opens up himself into a relationship that, that is a, um, a relationship of, of emotion. That is, so the context of God putting himself in the place to be in a relationship with us is such a helpful place to understand the possibility. Because in any relationship, you are inviting emotion. You are kind of putting yourself in the position to experience emotion. Um, yes. But when we're thinking of the God of the universe, for him to extend relationship to us inevitably means that he is humbling himself to a position where creatures now can be in relationship with him. And the, right. the one who is incapable of suffering is now humbling himself to be able now to suffer. Um, is that, yeah. is that in it, line? It, it's absolutely, uh, yes, absolutely. And I think this, this gets us to what Martin Luther called the theology of the cross. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the, the, one of the things that, that Luther was pushing back against was the kind of tradition that, that he saw leading up to his time, which was to have this kind of preconceived idea of what God could be and then try to make the, the narrative of scripture to fit that preconceived idea of God. And, and what Luther did kind of really at the heart of Luther's revolution was... No, we need to let the narrative define for us who God is and particularly the cross, right? Luther wants us to center on the cross so that we see Jesus hanging on the cross, what is being revealed to us about God. And again, I think this is where we get this really interesting juncture that takes place in the Christian story of God, which is what you see there is an event in the life of God. Right, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all participating in the crucifixion yeah. of Jesus. Are all are all present and participating in that. Um, and there's a completeness there of this is the the Godhead at work, and yet it's also a place at which clearly there is emotion. Clearly there is suffering. Yeah, that is taking place right in Jesus's physical suffering, which a Christology conversation right. would be: be careful not just attribute. Well, that was the the, the human side of Jesus, mm-hmm. and not the divine side. We can't par- partition Jesus like that. He is the God Man, hundred percent God, hundred percent human. So what he is experiencing at the cross, he is experiencing in the fullness of his divinity, and in the fullness of his humanity. So what Luther would want us to say is the cross needs to tell us actually God can suffer, but, but why and what's at work there? And it's not something that's happening to God so good. from outside of God, is that, it, that God in his own self-determination as God has chosen this, relation, this relationship with humanity and therefore in his love depths his love for us has chosen 
to be a God who can suffer on the cross. And the, I think the key here is, again, to state, this isn't something that's happening to God yes. by us yes. from the outside. This is something that God has chosen to be this kind of God, right? Karl Barth talks about this in his theology of, of, of God and his own sovereignty over God's self. And this would be a whole other conversation, but God chooses to be a particular kind of God for yeah. all of eternity. Yeah. And that's revealed on the cross. Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, that is so helpful. Um, so then I, we're over and I don't care. So let's, I have one more thing. I don't care. <laughs> okay. This is so helpful. Um, can you, can you help us see how impassibility connects to the Christian life and helps in the Christian life? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think for me, like just thinking about how does this shape the way that I think about God, right? Again, what is it that we're affirming? What is it that we're denying? But now not just that theological, like intellectual place, but what is it that my heart should be affirming about God? And what is it that my heart should be denying about God? And I think what our hearts should affirm is God really loves us. Yeah. God really loves his creation. And, and that, that isn't just a, you know, a non-feeling kind of a uh, choice that God makes to love, but there's feeling in God for the creation. That should be so vital in the way that we think about who God is. Mm. Right? He is not just a distant, uncaring force out there he is a a god of love so that's what we're affirming what we're denying is that he's capricious what we're denying is that his emotions are like ours his emotions are contingent okay. right that his emotions are flying off the handle if i do something that he's not going to like and now i have to kind of navigate this capricious god God is not capricious. My emotions are capricious. God's emotions are not. And so I think that what that I hope does in our Christian life is it helps to rewrite the, the narratives that we have about who God is, affirming that he is impassable, yeah. but he is also love. And that's the God that we worship. And that's the God that we dwell in the presence of. And I, I hope that's a comforting word to the folks who are, are hearing this. I, I hope so as well. Uh, and it makes me think of the numerous times through the scriptures we see God's love described as steadfast. It's yeah. steadfast because yeah. he's impassable, because he simply that's right. is this. Uh, and therefore I can't that's do right. anything to affect it, which is Amen. incredible. Joel, thank you. Uh, thank you for this walkthrough. And thank you for this help uh, with the Doctrine of Impassibility. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you, Joel. And thank you for joining us as well. Uh, we look forward to seeing you guys next time.